Nya, nya, nya. Ba, mba, babue, Zimbabwe. <clears throat> the broken Bunsen burner burns so bright. South, Jamie. Southeast Asian Peninsula. Hey, hey, Jamie. Yes. I think the only line we need from you today is drivers who switch to progressive could say big. Cool. I just got to finish my warm-ups. <clears throat> foul, foul, throw in the towel. History, history. Switch to progressive today. Santa ski slalom in a salmon skin suit. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. At Discount Tire, you can shop online and get the same trusted advice you get from the stores. Then just book a time that's convenient for you. When you get to the store, you can stay safe with a new touchless experience. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Kaiju Curry House. My name is Joe and I am joined here tonight with our episode guest, Mr. Steve Wang and regular co-hosts, Paul and Alex. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. (laughs) All right. For those of our listeners who might not be acquainted with Steve yet, he is a legend. Um... Pretty much everything that we've gone over in the podcast to date, he has had probably some influence on or has touched, such as Harry and the Hendersons, The Predator, and yes, that Predator, um, Monster Squad, where he worked on The Gill Man, Godzilla 98, Reign of Fire, The Cave, Alien vs. Predator Requiem, and he has also recently worked on the new Bill and Ted movie that's coming out in August, if that's right, Steve? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, as we normally start off, um, we're going to do our fabulous pun that was coined by Paul. Paul, I'll, I'll go ahead and ask you, now that I've name-dropped you, <laughs> what have kaiju been up to? Uh, I've watched a few kaiju films lately, actually, which has been great, because I know I've been slacking the past few. When you say kaiju films, do you mean, like, Assassin's Creed, because that's what you consider a kaiju game these days? Um, I didn't say it was a kaiju game, but it featured kaiju, so, you know, it's mm. more kaiju than it follows, but we won't get into that now. I watched um, <laughs> The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which, yeah, okay. yes. absolutely fantastic film. So we love um, Ray Harryhausen on here, and my 20-month-old son was forced to watch it as well, because he was in his high chair, so he couldn't escape it. And he mm. seemed quite mesmerised, or potentially terrified, by the Cyclops, I'm not sure which one. It, indoctrinating a new fan. Great. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, that's the way you do it, right? Yeah. I say he um yeah, yeah, he was he was mesmerized by that film. Just it's I it's still I still remembered some of the lines. I haven't watched it in years. It's just such a fantastic film. Um and then I also watched something completely modern, the twenty nineteen release of Hellboy. Which I know got a lot of flack, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good fun. It's fun. It, it is, is, isn't fun. it? It's fun. Yeah. I, I was put off because the original cast weren't in it, but I watched it and I, oh yes, it's not quite the same with Ron Perlman and co, but I still had a good time. It got slated. So if anyone didn't was it? thinking about, it, it did get slated. Absolutely slated to hell and back. Like um, people yeah. said, it was horrible as a film, which is such a shame. 
Well, I think that's why I liked it, <laughs> because everyone said it's bad. So you go in I, thinking... I went oh. in with such trepidation. Exactly. You do, don't you think, oh, this is going to be terrible. And you watch it, you think, actually, no, I had a great time watching this. Mm. So if anyone, if everyone, yeah, wants to see it, just go for it. There's, Steve, I mean, your thoughts on the new on the newest Hellboy <laughs> movie? Um, you know, I'll be honest, when I first watched it, I had a really hard time getting through it. Um, and I had to kind of stop because I just felt like it was something really off about it. But then I waited a couple of days and I rewatched it again, and somehow I got over that initial shock. Um, I found it to be actually very entertaining. Um, I thought the the makeups and the effects were all really well done. You know, um, I think what was the most shocking for me was probably just the the whole dynamics between Hellboy and 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 Broom. Um, that was just so different. Um, but you know, by the end of the day, I just I thought everything was pretty refreshing. You know, it was. If you're going to do something, you might as well just do it different. I, I kind of almost wish that it was even more different than, than it was because I felt like it was, um, like from the original, when I first originally heard about it, I thought they said it was going to be much darker and more, more violent. They kept the violent part, but it didn't yeah. really get as dark as I thought it was going to be. And it, it was kind of like a still very wisecracking Hellboy and all that kind of stuff. And, if anything, for me personally, I would love to see a more film noir style Hellboy movie made. I think that would be something worth looking into, you know, that kind of style. But. I was going to say, I was really, because I'd gone in and like, unfortunately, I'd, I'd heard about all these negative reviews. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm still going to watch it. And, you know, like I was, I was kind of holding my breath until he's in the ring with uh, his former partner and his partner's literally transforming before our eyes here. And he's trying to bring him back verbally. Like, I don't want to fight you. Don't please stop, you know, doing his best. And then at one point he, he has this great like line. It's just like, don't you remember barbecues? You get your guitar out and play that hippie acoustic crap. And I'd play real music. <laughs> I love that line. I yeah, was just that's thinking, a good line. Like, this is a real friendship here. There's abuse. So yeah. yeah, but no, it is. I, I think that for what it is, it's a really decent movie, and it shouldn't have gotten all that flack. I mean, it sets out, and I think it it pleases the audience that it was meant for. Unfortunately, yeah. well, I guess that wasn't everybody. You know what, what was shocking to me uh, the most was the, the the box office numbers. It didn't look like the movie came out and people saw it and hated it. It looked like nobody went. Uh, the numbers were so small in the United States that it literally looked like nobody went to go see it. Wow. Which kind of was concerning for me. It's really sad. Does that mean that, yeah, does that mean is, that people yeah. are just not into Hellboy, you know? Yeah. So there must have been that much negativity about the release that yeah. it was, yeah, people are actually put off going to cinema. Uh, it's a shame. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think the negativity, the negativity came so much from you know the movie side of the industry because it's so it's so small compared to the, the the size of the country. You know, I think what happened was literally people just didn't have interest in Hellboy. It was what I got out of it. No. I'm looking at the release date, and it was April 2019. Which you know, if I'm looking at a UK release date, I apologize. But to me, if I was going to look for like fan interest or you know like the time of year to release kind of a horror comedy action, I pick October. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I mean, like, I, I don't feel like that's like an off the wall suggestion, but somehow April was that was chosen, or you could, or May or June. Tremors Seven's getting released uh, for Halloween this year. Tremors Seven. 
Segway, what do you think of uh, Tremors, Steve? <laughs> Uh, Trevor is amazing. It's, oh, thank it's you. such a great film. Yeah. There we go. So somehow it, it's become a gag now, but somehow Tremors always manages to burrow its way into our podcast Ouch. every episode. Ouch. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, nobody handles garbage better than we do. I'm a dad. I got punts. I'm sorry. But um, anyways, uh, yeah, so it's become like a thing. Alex Alex totally stole Paul's thunder there, but normally Paul <laughs> asks the special guests now what they think of Tremors just to like get it in there, one and done. But anyways, Paul, Seven I, films I passed in. the torch on to do. <laughs> I passed the torch now. It's your turn to ask. Okay, um, Joe, what have Kaiju been up to? Oh, hit me right back. Yeah. All right, so... Um, because I knew that we had Steve coming on, I watched Monster Squad, which isn't anything really special to say because I'm always watching Monster Squad. I love that film. I love the Goonies. I love Monsters. And that film was just a great mash of the two. Um, I have always been a Gilman fan, and um, I love that updated look. That was uh, Stan Winston Studio that mm-hmm. did that at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. So um, – that was a great reimagining of the original creature. I love the way that it looks. Um, I think that was a great way to give it a few more horror aspects. He's got teeth now. Um, and, uh, you know, in general, great job, but we'll get into that later. Um, Joe watched monster squad. So I, um, I guess, uh, Alex, you can ask the next person because I can have two goes now. Quite. Um, Steve, our special guest, what have Kaiju been up to? Oh, well, um, I'm actually preparing for Monster Palooza right now. And oh. Monster Palooza is a convention that we have yearly. Actually, twice a year we have it. Uh, there's the, the main Monster Palooza, and then there's Son of Monster Palooza. <laughs> and I'm prepping for the main Monster Palooza in May. Uh, I have a booth there with my collectible company called Elite Creature mm-hmm. Collectibles. And every year we have a, a combination of licensed character busts and my kids that we do and then we have a bunch of original pieces uh this year we're trying something a little bit different we still have some licensed stuff but not as much and we're going to try kind of a new format of original style monster pieces so i'm actually doing three pieces for it this year uh and i'm sort of in the middle of the first one right now um it's kind of a a take on a uh, a scorpion character uh, not not from Mortal Kombat, but like a, a you know like an actual creature, and uh, you know I'm hoping that uh, we'll get a good reaction. It's pretty pretty cool looking, I think. And uh, so yeah, I just come into work every day, and I'm just aside from just running my business and you know getting back to producers and bids and all that kind of crap, I I also try to sneak out in the back and get my personal projects finished. <laughs> So that's what I did. That's very cool. Quite a lot, no? Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that. You get to ask me now, Steve. Yeah. What has Kaiju been up to? Um, I've been watching Neon Genesis Evangelion after we were lucky enough to have Tiffany Grant on the show. I decided that I'd rewatch it, listening out for her voice and kind of just getting a new perspective on it. Also thinking about what the differences were between the original that I listened to with those voice actors and then the new dub uh, done by netflix so that that's been very interesting i've also 
enjoyed watching a couple more times Howl from Beyond the Fog by Daisuke Sato. That's been really interesting. Just kind of getting a bit more material in my mind for discussion because we're going to be reviewing that film pretty soon. So, yeah, those are the two main things that I've been up to. Yeah. Steve, um, the earliest information that I could find was that you worked on Harry and the Hendersons. Now, was there anything earlier than that that got you into the world of special effects? Um, yeah, actually, there was, I think my earliest uh, professional credit was four years before that, uh, it was 1980, and uh, I got a job with a local theater company that had a television special on PBS, uh, and they needed some samurai masks. Uh, different different versions like a like a calm guy, a medium angry guy, and a super angry guy. Uh, that's like classic sort of no theater style. And then they needed a falcon god designed and made for them. So I also designed and did that for them. So that was like my first job in 1980, and I was I was actually 14 years old. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then uh, and then during that during that time between 80 to 85, before I moved to LA, um, I also. You know, I was developing my skills and, you know, entering contests and, you know, fortunate enough to win a bunch of contests locally, got in the newspapers a lot, and then, uh, worked on another feature film, actually a couple, couple more films that didn't come out. They were low budget films that I guess they never finished. They ultimately moved to LA at that time, no doubt, uh, to work on my very first project with Stan Winston, which was called Invaders from Mars. Uh, and that happened right before okay. Harry. Oh. And can you tell us about your first experience working on that film? What was that like? Uh, it was really exciting, you know. Being being from the Bay Area, which is 400 miles north of, of L.A., um, you know, I, I was basically self-taught. I mean, back in those days, anybody working in the business is self-taught. So we're in our garage, we're watching monster movies, we're reading Fangoria and similar effects and cinema magic and trying to figure out from the photos how things were done, you know, trying it, fucking it all up, and then, uh, but then learning from it. Uh, ultimately, we build a portfolio, come down, and then it's really nice that, you know, your heroes like Stan Winston and Rick Baker and Dick Smith, you know, like having some of these guys actually hire you to work for them uh, was a, a big thrill. Um, and one of the most, I guess, valuable experience I got from working from, for Stan Winston was Watching how he worked on set, and and the importance of communication with the AD on set, because you know when you're doing effects, everything is sort of touch and go all the time. Things change constantly. If something didn't go right, the director say, "Let's screw that. Let's shoot this right now instead." And everything just the schedule just flips, and also you can, you're put in a bad situation where you're like, "Wait a minute, that's not ready yet, but you want to shoot this what in a, a half hour?" You know, so that kind of things happen all the time. So I learned from Stan how to just keep in constant communication with the AD. And from that point on, when I did my own projects, I always really did well on set because, you know, they know what's going on, I know what's going on, and we never have any bad surprises. And for our listeners, um, anyone who might be slightly uncertain, what exactly is your role? How would you define your role for the complete novice? Well, it's... it's Differs from project to project, you know. On on projects like uh, Invaders from Mars, you know, I was pretty much a newbie, so I came in and I worked in the the lab department, you know, uh, prepping, cleaning molds, to uh, pouring polyfoam and casting pieces, to seaming and cleaning them up, to painting, um, you know, that. So there's there's that aspect of the the, the technical side 
And then there's the artistic side. You know, primarily what I do mostly is, um, at least in my earlier career, I was a sculptor and painter. So most jobs I get hired, I get hired to, to sculpt and paint. Sometimes I even get to design stuff here and there. Uh, and then you know, the more experience I got, the more opportunities I got to do to have bigger roles in these projects. And then and, and then I ended up becoming the art director slash project supervisor for a lot of different studios, like uh, Spectral Motion for the first Hellboy. You know, mm-hmm. I headed up the age safety and makeup for for Spectral and also the Samael feature. Um, at the Tatopolis Studios, you know, I did Underworld 1 and 2. I was the lead art director in that and, you know, uh, and like built the suits and the creature makeups. And so I do, you know, I kind of do a full gamut of stuff. Like my, I look at my job primarily as a problem solver because I'm constantly solving problems, but then I have the artistic skills to back up and enough technical know-how to work with all the other departments like fabrication, uh, animatronics, you know, you, you have to understand how all that stuff works in order to be able to work with departments to to, to work towards the best uh, possible result of what you're building. Wow. So you've so you've worked on quite a few iconic suits then in your time. Have you ever got to wear them? <laughs> yeah, really. Good question. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Have you got, have you nicked one and just gone to have fun with it? Yeah. yeah I, I've uh, I've worn suits before. Um, the one that I'm probably I've done the most in is uh, a movie called Alina. Um, it's an Italian American production, Empire Pictures, shot I think in 1987, 88. And uh, um, you should look it up. It's on YouTube. There's a it, there's a scene where uh, the the lead Paul Satterfield, he is. You know, it's like a it's a rocky story in space. Basically. Okay. I've seen this movie. I think it's on Netflix. Oh, is it? Um, yeah. There's like he fights like a caterpillary slug guy, or I think, at that's, one, that's, and then there's like a lizardy guy yes. that he like sparring was, with and stuff. I was the caterpillar guy. <laughs> you were in there. That was me, and, oh. and I also choreographed the fight uh, because I had to perform it practically blind. So yeah, you know, I had to practice with him and perform it kind of blind, and uh, yeah, but that was me. And that's uh, oh, very cool. It was, uh, it, was, it was a nightmare because <laughs> it was it was really heavy, and I had to be at an angle all the time, and it really just killed my back. Um, yeah. yeah, I can imagine that. That was a big costume too. Yeah, yeah, that was you know I just I helped. You on did it. yourself no favors. <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't. I didn't build it. I I helped. Oh, okay. Yeah, I helped on it. I sculpted some stuff on it, but that wasn't my project. I was I was actually hired as a creature. Mm. Oh wow! So you you are really just a jack yeah. of all trades now. Yeah, I try to. It's you know I, I think it's just fun to be versatile. You know, I also you painter, know, sculptor, space caterpillar, <laughs> boxer. Mm-hmm. I mean, like yeah. You got you've got a very great combination going there. I mean, that's pretty unique. Yeah, I try to experience everything. You know, I, I've I've got to edit movies on you know on different formats of film uh, to digital. You know, I've um, I built sets. I've like you know. I don't know. Can you give us an example of a set? That sounds really cool too. Uh, well, like uh, Guyver Two. Have you seen Guyver Two? The uh, the, the cave mm-hmm. set. Okay. Set, that whole thing was a set. Yeah, and that was built by myself and my office crew. Wow, mostly. Yeah, it so, I, I, it's it's interesting. So I know that they did this like on Star Wars and everything. But since you built that, you know, this would be just interesting. You know, I get verification of it. So, 
what I imagine is that uh, the set in and of itself, like there are walking paths and everything, and then there's puppetry, and then there are rigs and stuff that come up and down the set to get different views or whatever. So like there are like holes all around, like what you would assume is just a walking surface. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then most of it's like most of the things that you see are in the foreground, the background, and then you have a few things sticking up in the middle ground where the actors are. But I mean, like other than that, the ground's pretty sparse and whatnot to allow for movement. And this is... Am I right? Yeah, it depends on, on on what you're trying to do, but yeah, it, when you're doing a puppet, or doing a puppet movie, generally the floor is raised so that performers can hide underneath. Ah. And then and then uh, when you when you design a set, you try to design it very modular so that there, there'll be walls that can be removed, so camera can go behind. You know, uh, you can you can step in front to hide performers, do all the stuff. And, you know, back in the in the days before uh, CGI. You can't just paint uh, a performer out. So the good old days. So yeah, yeah. things were done correctly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, so it was very tricky to to hide performers and get the shot that you want. Uh, now with the freedom of, of CG and they can basically comp you know a character in or paint people out so effectively now. You have so much more freedom and you can work a little bit faster too without with less limitations. Has that removed so, any of the charm for you? Yeah. Um, well. Yes and no. I mean, I think CG is a is a great technology, and it's it's a technology that we need in the film business because it does make our work better. I believe in the long run, it you know it really does. Uh, but like any technology, there's also an abuse uh, aspect of it, where something can be done better with another technique. Everybody just goes like to CG it, um, and so I think a lot a lot of films I've seen have also suffered from from this, whereas. You know, you look at a movie like Blade Two. You know, Blade Two has a combination of of CG over practical elements, and the marriage of the two is so seamless; it's amazing. And then within the one scene, uh, just like in Jurassic Park Two, they mix an animate uh, a combination of animatronics and and full digital shots, and you can't tell the difference because each one is done so effectively for what they need. And uh, and and that's to me the the best way. Like one thing that has gotten or has been forgotten is that visual effects is supposed to suspend your disbelief. You know, the biggest compliment back when I was a kid, as a, you know, watching visual effects is that if the effects is invisible, you didn't know it was an effect. That was the biggest compliment. But now everybody's all about, hey, me, look at me, I'm an effect, I'm an effect, look at me. Oh, what? You can't tell? Oh, I better do something like even crazier and, and defy all gravity and all sense of realism. So you'll notice that it's an effect. You know what I mean? Like, like I think one of the biggest crime that that digital effects has committed in, in terms of the creature is their use of physics, you know, or lack of physics. You know, uh, creatures that weigh five tons move like they weigh a hundred pounds, and, and the speed in which they're able to move it's like it just doesn't happen in in real life. And sh- sure, they're fantasy characters, and you want to be able to give them more power, more speed. And it, and it can be done right, and I have seen movies that have done that right. But then, lot, example, uh, like Rate of Fire. If you look at the dragon, <laughs> when the dragon is flying and it, it's coming down around people, this thing is huge. It's going fast, but it it literally rolls by with the weight and the feel of a freight train. It doesn't fly by like it's a, a little drone that's you know that weighs a hundred pounds. You know what I mean? It's it, it's mm. that. Certainly in the run-up towards Christmas, we sat down and reviewed some films together for nostalgia, and Joe mentioned Rain of Fire, and what I liked, what Joe said, was that 
they knew from the start that in order to get the audience grabbed, the dragons had to be believable. There's nothing magical about it. They're made of flesh and blood. You take out their heart, you bring down the beast. If the dragons weren't right, the film would, you know, would not work. And the dragons are absolutely fantastic. I mean, you personally, Joe, said that, you know, if you're going to go for something which is, you know, the best sort of showcasing of dragons, don't look to Game of Thrones, look to Reign of Fire. Reign of Fire. I stand by that. Even back when we were doing the, the sculptures, you know, uh, there's an artist named Miles Tevis. He was one of the lead art directors of the dragon. He was, he was in charge of the look of the dragon and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and I was part of his team on that project. And I remember a lot of discussions were had about how, what is the right size wing for the, for the dragon. And the final, the final wings were so huge, you know, uh, compared to most dragons you see in movies. But then if you really look at the reality of it based on the, the size of this dragon and, you know, and, and gravity and weight and, you know, the wings needed to be that big, you know, to really, to, to make this thing fly. And so, you know, a lot of thoughts were put in, you know, because things don't scale up properly. Something that's, you know, a, a bird that's scaled up to be like a hundred times the size, well, the proportions will probably have to change due to the gravity difference, you know, that it has to deal with as, at that size. So those are all things that, you know, as creature designers, we consider mm. and we think about when we try to do something to believe it. Yeah, no, thank you very much very for that. Good. Let's yeah. take our first break and then let's return and look at some more of your works. Thank you very much, Steve. Recently on the Heroes Podcast Network, Echo Station. Well, what's the main, think... what's the main planet that Endor, the forest moon of Endor? It's a moon. So it's, there's a major planet, obviously, that it... Is the forest moon of Endor? Is Endor the actual planet then? See, th- isn't that confusing? <laughs> yes. Is it the forest moon of the planet Endor or is it the forest moon called Endor? Kaiju Curry House. It got to the point where he started climbing the Empire State Building, and my mom is like, he's not going to die, is he? (laughs) Oh, no. My mom doesn't know shit about these films. But anyways, it was just like, mom, this doesn't end well for Kong. And she's just like, I can't watch the rest of this. Turn it off. I'm like, you can't get to this point in Peter Jackson's King Kong two hours and like whatever many minutes later and not watch the end. Screen Heroes. The nipples just were confusing to me because they just <laughs> they just make no sense. That is our clip, by the way. Uh, uh, but I mean, male nipples are kind of confusing anyway. So right? like well, they serve true. zero that's purpose. True. Do you think that was the point he was trying to make? <laughs> it's a much deeper message. Yes. <laughs> is Batman and Robin a heavily an allegory, social allegory? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Subscribe today at HeroesPodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker. Podcast Addict, and more. Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch, and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. Products not available in every state.
Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome back to the second part of Kaiju Curry House. My name is Alex. I'm joined by the regular hosts, Paul and Joe, and our fantastically delightful guest, Mr. Steve Wang, who has been discussing for the past couple of minutes proper use of physics in films and how the correct combination of CGI with traditional practical special effects is what can make the perfect movie. Yeah, uh, the wingspan on uh, the Reign of Fighter Dragon, you know, Miles Tevis, the, the main art director, designer on that, uh, he, you know, we had a lot of discussions about the size of the wings because, you know, when you take a little bird and and they, they have small wings, they fly fast and whatnot, but then when you take that same bird and you scale it up a hundred times, now the size and the weight difference with our gravity would dictate that this bird has to be different. It has to have different proportions in order to deal with the new set of gravities. So, you know, that, that applies to, to everything that we do in creatures. And so these are things that we actually think about. And, you know, and, and one other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand, like, you know, you see so much CG creatures in movies now, and you hardly ever see any real practical stuff. And one thing a lot of people don't understand is that to properly do practical effects, animatronic creatures, you know, especially things that takes a, a multiple number of puppeteers and coordination, it's actually quite a time-consuming process to build and test, and then to also rehearse and perform. And then when you get on set, the setup time, you know, you, whether or not you have to build a specialty set for it that has drop-down floor or removable walls, and to accommodate for this this character, there's so much thought that goes behind it that nowadays with the movies, they've a lot of people just consider that just too much. Like, we don't want to deal with that problem anymore because to do all that and we're still not going to have the, the, the flexibility to change our mind on set or anything like that. So in favor of having more freedom, unfortunately, practical effects, you know, especially in, the, in, in terms of the puppetry and, and creatures, have gotten cut way down over over time just in, in favor of something that's easier for the, the filmmakers to deal with on set. So that's you know that's that's a huge challenge and and um, you know having been on set many times and doing practical stuff and then getting our, always getting our time cut and then ultimately at the end they say oh we don't have enough footage or the correct footage we're just going to drop it and replace it on CG it just happens way too often um, and whether you you're okay with that or whether you're not okay with that you know it doesn't it, you know it it's ultimately that's that's what it is. That's that's one of the huge factors that why practical effects have not been used as much in movies as as it has in the past. Yeah, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... it's just you can tell when something's real. I'll, oh I yeah. Mean, like however good the CGI is, you can tell. I mean, it, that's that, that's always my takeaway. I think it part of it is having grown up with practical effects you have a much better appreciation of what real, like it's kind of like when you talk about the texture of a film, you can tell when something's real, when it's actually there. Yeah. You know? I mean, I mean, you, you can, for the most part, you know, that, that whole uncanny Valley thing is very easy to, to, um, to step into, you know, accidentally and do something that creeps you out. But then, you know, 
like I said, I, I don't want to be the guy who's like crapping on CGI because I, I don't believe that. I believe CG is a really good tool. And I have seen amazing CG uh, characters, like like the, the last three Planet of the Apes movies. You know, oh, they, yeah. they were amazing. Those digital apes, they were 100% believable to me. Um, and what I really love about, you know, the the characters, like the, the, the orangutan in that movie, it's just, it's he's real. You know, when I look at that, I, like that to me was the best example of, of like the best ape in that entire series. So they've never, there was never one shot in that movie or the three films where I looked at that orangutan and said, wow, that's CG. It was that good. And so certainly people are capable of, of doing such amazing quality work. And, you know, and, and for me personally, you know, if that, if all CG looked like that, I would <laughs> never complain about anything. I'll be like, well, I got no yeah, complaints. Yeah. What can I say? It's perfect. <laughs> you know? Uh, so certainly it's possible and people have done it. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's, it's just a matter of your, your preference, I suppose. I feel like I need to be cheeky and ask this question now, though. What is an example? What's a glaring example of where someone perhaps should not have used CG? Oh, or maybe perhaps it was now? an excessive seems, use of CG it in seems one particular scene. Bitchy. No, no, just, just we one. We don't need to name just, drop, do we? Just one. No, no, no. I'm not. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. But I mean. I, I I know of one um, that didn't need CG. Uh, it was actually like a made-for-TV movie. I think it was actually around 1998 or 97. Don't say Trevor's. Um, but it was Gar... No, it was not Trevor's. You took it back from me, Paul. Well done. But, <laughs> all right. But um, do you remember Gargantua, Steve? That made-for-TV movie right before Godzilla came out. Gargantua? God, oh, yeah. is it a, it's, it's, an, it's an American film? Yeah, it is. No, I never, yeah. never heard of it. Okay, so they had great like animatronics and puppets in that movie. So um, you'll be familiar with the Sci-Fi Channel, and I think occasionally they'll use CG, and it doesn't necessarily look the best. Well, they got but, about um, they got about a buck fifty to do the effects on. The yeah, I know. Yeah, I recognize yeah. that. I recognize <laughs> that. I'm not knocking yeah. that. But when we're talking about, you know, like that versus say Jurassic Park, you know, but, um, Gargantua had some amazing realistic suits, some props. I mean, like the creatures, the practical creature effects in there were great. And then for one scene, they decided to use a broad daylight, like 40 foot high, like it's a Godzilla-esque monster. I mean, like it was, it was timed in the right way to capitalize on the Godzilla 98 fame, but Again, it was broad daylight. The creature had minimal texture on the CG render. And I was just thinking, you know, you could have just like taken your really amazing prop and positioned it the camera in such a way. <laughs> but that would be an example for me that where CG was not used effectively when you could have had a practical effect. Yeah, I think for, for movies like that, you know, you can, you can pretty much expect bad effects. Uh, because a lot of times it's just there's just not enough money or time to do stuff like that. But but I mean I can top that very easily. I think there, oh you've, you've a, thrown down the gauntlet now. Yeah, there's 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 one that should never have been done that way, and I think it, it's very well known. Everyone knows it. They're still making comparisons to it to this day. Is okay. it's the the Scorpion King from uh, Mummy the Part Rock. Two? Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah right? you nailed it. How did I yeah. miss that? 
Yeah. Oh, where, yeah. you know, it's like the creature looked fine, but then you got to the rock portion and it was like, you know, he did, it had no life in the eyes. It was obviously not a person. Um, and you know, and that was ILM. So, so yeah, that, that was a, for me, I find, sorry, I, I found the special effects and the use of CGI in the more recent Beowulf movie. Um, that, that left me cold. Mm-hmm. That entire movie I, was CGI. I know it was, and for me, it left me cold. I, I found the use of CGI in that movie not great. For such, I think because the story is literally archaic, because Beowulf has, you know, been passed down, well, for centuries, the use of CGI almost felt out of place for me with Beowulf. I felt like it would have benefited from a more traditional approach. When I, first started looking on the internet to get some information about your work, I found a really interesting interview that goes back to 2012. Can I quote you for a moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh You said that (laughs) um, your advice to people who have aspirations, stop texting, pay attention. Having the skills are important, but being a good sculptor or painter takes practice and hard work. But to be good means you have to work hard. And you have to love it. If you don't love it, you shouldn't do it. Work hard, work hard, work hard. Your work ethic is, you know, clearly a strong part of, you know, your legacy with, in the industry. And at some points you described yourself as being almost, uh, like a self-hating perfectionist. Have I got that right? Yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I don't, I don't hate myself anymore and I'm no, no longer a perfectionist. I am now the greatest. Doesn't have to be perfect. Just has so, to be great. with that in mind. <laughs> that was a James Cameron quote, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah, that James Cameron said nice. that. That's his quote. And I love that quote. Oh. I, I say it all the time. Cause people have always accused me of being a perfectionist mm. and, uh, you know, if anybody knows themselves well, I I do not believe there is such a thing as a perfectionist. Mm. At least I've never experienced anyone like that. Uh, um, I've experienced. There's a worse people. critic. You're your worst critic. Yeah, I met people that will seem like perfectionists mm. to most people, and they are extremely talented and mm. amazing. But if you talk to them, they're not perfectionists. They're just like they're mostly self-hating and and mostly consider themselves failures because they just can't do what they think that they should be doing. You know, the level of what things should be doing. So that's sort of a, the dichotomy of, of being labeled. When I returned to university to learn to be a teacher, I met quite a few people who were sat down with me on training and they said, oh, I'm a perfectionist. That's why I want to be a teacher. And we very quickly got told, well, actually, an important part of being a teacher, like so many professions, is being a, a reflective practitioner and going, OK, this worked. This didn't work. But the vast majority falls into that. Yeah, it, it, it were, you know, it was fine. And there are those few moments where it was brilliant, but you know, you can't constantly replicate that. And similarly, I have moments where in the classroom, I think, yeah, I, I absolutely reached out and people understood what I'm saying. And I had the meaning out of the palm of my hand. Other moments, I think, no, that they, they have no idea what I'm talking about at all. So the reason why I quoted you was because I wanted to ask, what are the challenges for people that are coming into the industry now? Well, there are, there are actually quite a few challenges because the industry that I grew up in is no longer the industry that is now. Back when I got started, there was, a, first of all, there was kind of a universal love to practical effects. You know, uh, we were basically rock stars back then. 
And the story that I always tell people, you know, is because this really happened on set. I was working on Hell Comes to Frogtown, and they was calling, okay, we need to bring the animatronics frogs in now, you know. So I grabbed the frog head with my assistant, and we're walking on set. And as we're walking, I notice the crew standing there would part for us like the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, and they would just look at it, it was like, and they were like, here comes the animatronic guys, you know, and it was all like, so it was surreal. It felt like we were in a movie and we're walking in slow motion on set, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like we're astronauts who just landed from the right stuff or something. And, and that, that observation always stuck with me because people just thought we were the, the coolest people around because we did the stuff. Um, so, so to have lived and worked in that period of, of time, the era of time was fantastic. And, and I felt, I feel really bad for the new generations coming in because they will probably never get to experience that anymore because CG came in and killed the industry for quite a while. And the industry just, you know, is getting back again and more, and more practical effects are being done again. You know, it's slowly kind of coming back to life, but it, it may never get to the level that it was back then. And it was a magical time. So, you know, and back then too, there was a thing where each artist had a voice, and if you did something, people would know, oh, that person did that movie, that person, he sculpted this creature, and this and that. And, you know, it was all very sort of, there was, there was a sense of, of authorship when you when you do a certain piece. Nowadays, it's become such a business, like, when, oh, we have a sculpture to do, and there'll be like three sculptors working on it at the same time. You know, you tag team everything because schedules and, you know, things get done. So you... You've lost a little bit of that 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 individuality of, of art, and um, not all the time, but in many cases. So, the the artists in general are not getting recognized as readily as they were back in back in those the times. I was literally I, about to say, does that mean like say you've got three people working simultaneously on just one aspect of sculpting? Effectively, d- does their reputation yes. get watered down almost wow. because there's so many more people working? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you when you show something, oh, you have to credit all these people. Oh, you know, this sculpture is done by this person, that person, that person. You know, so it's not, it's not like, look at this sculpture I did, and you you can claim the whole thing as yours. You know, even when when I post stuff now these days, a lot of sculptures I work on will have you know two other people working on it as well. You know, and I'm the and I'm the you know, but it's it's I made it I made it so because in order to get it done in time, mm-hmm. I can't just sit there and do everything myself, or I can't hire one person to do something by himself or herself if there's not enough time. I have to, I have to throw more people at it. Mm. So that happens very, very uh, frequently these days. Um, okay. So there, there, there's, that, there, there's that side of it. Yeah, and then people are just not getting as recognized. You know, Still, in the, in the makeup community, there is still, you still do get recognized. Like if you do good work and you post it on Instagram and social media, you know, eventually people will see it and you still kind of get a bit of that. Uh, whereas yeah. that part is really terrible is for the, the CG, the digital community. You look at a movie for, and, and in just in one effects house, there'll be like 300 uh, visual effects artists working. And at that point, nobody gets to be no. in that rock star status. You know what I mean? You see an amazing effect and you know, oh, about 600 people worked on this effect. <laughs> So, so then no one gets recognized and you don't know who did what. And, and I feel even worse for the digital artists because, you know, I've met a lot of these artists. I've seen a lot of the work, their work and they're, they're just amazing. And it, had they been in an industry that promoted this, this, uh, sense of authorship and, and, 
and you know individual voice and, and style they would get so much further in life than they are right now being thrown just like you know uh, mm. just in the crowd really oh yeah yeah sounds it so when you were when you're doing sculpting whether it's just yourself or, or as a team i was wondering how d- doesn't does the director or writer or art department tell you what they want out of a sculpt. I'm just wondering how much um, creative freedom do you get when doing a sculpture? Um, it's all very different. It's all very different. It, it depends on who you're working with, mm. you know. Uh, I've been very lucky in most of the projects that I've done. I've had very little input from the director. Um, and then if it's projects that I'm working for, for as a freelance for other studios, the, the studio bosses will come in and like art direct and give me you know, like, oh, can you try something like this, try something like that? Oh, okay. But, you know, the, but the one thing is, you know, as, as an artist, too, like, you know, and I don't know if this is the same for a lot of people, but for me, I was lucky enough to, that people recognize that I have a style. So they bring me in to let me do what I do. So they can say, here's basically what it's supposed to be, but then take it and make it, take it to the next level. So that's what I... Oh, that's I cool. I've been able to sort of offer, Yeah. Um, okay. It's happened for me with other shops I work for. It's happened to me in my own studios. You know, when I worked for the video game company like Blizzard, uh, when we did like the Arthas statue, the Grom, you know, all yeah. the statues, you know, their art directors would come to me and say, "Hey, we love what you do. Here's the design. Here's the character. But bring bring your take on this. Bring your sensibility to it. Take what we design and then just make it nicer. Make it whatever." <laughs> and so, you know, so they, they encouraged me to, to add my own stuff to it and, and just take it to a, a, you know, to a level where it reflects my contribution into their designs. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, that's, no, that's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a great situation to be in because yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you're, you're respected, which is nice, you know, and then, and then you get to contribute artistically to something, especially something that's already established and iconic. Like in some of the Blizzard characters, like Arthas, you know, and who's like a, so iconic for that that whole franchise, that world. Uh, I was going to say, for your company, then um, you're you're getting are people coming to you asking you to make make the um, models, or are you approaching companies and saying, "God, I love Ultraman, I want to do"? A um, we just started kind of, we just started reaching out to to people uh, this just this year. But in my entire career, uh, I've never really had to reach out to people. I've been very lucky that they somehow always find me. Uh, I think one of the biggest jobs that I ever got, uh, for, you know, from a, a video game company, uh, was this, this, I got a call, I just cold call out of nowhere. And this guy said, Hey, we got this project. Can you give me a quote for this? You know, and here's what we're doing. Send me, I'll sit, you know, I'll send you some stuff. And I gave him this huge quote because it was a huge job. And then uh, they gave us the check, and we started working. And then a couple weeks later, the guy showed up from Texas, and he looked at me, and he started laughing. He says, you have the biggest account of this year, and you have no website. You're not listed <laughs> in the phone book. Like, you know, you, you, we, we had to find you to give you all this money. <laughs> and I thought, wow, maybe I should, like, have a website or something. Um, I never really took it yeah, all that serious. It's just like, I can call, do something. Sure, I'll do it, you know, whatever. Um, I never thought of it as a business until I. So over the thirty over the thirty plus years that you have been sculpting, can you select out for us some key sculptures that you're most proud of that you've enjoyed the most? I, I tend to not remember these things because it's for mm-hmm. me. Like I do so much stuff and I love doing it and I enjoy it all and they're all my children. So I was like, you know, okay, now which one is your favorite child? Oh my god! <laughs> I, I will I will <laughs> say though, um, having said that, <clears throat> uh, and c- going to completely contradict what I just said. 
please don't tell us your favorite child. That would that'd seem a little bit of bad taste. No, 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 but I, I will say I am very proud of this child's achievement. Uh, the our Arthur statue that we did, the bronze monument uh, that's in uh, Taichung City in, mm-hmm. tai, in Taiwan. Uh, that's one that I'm really proud of because you know it's it's a it's a monument that's going to be there for hopefully hundreds of years, and uh, we pour our heart and soul into that. Yeah, that's all about legacy too isn't yeah, it like yeah. you know that like that's going to touch a lot of people a lot of people are going to see that and like yeah. get inspired by it yeah it's in a public park you know and and they send me videos and photos of of all these senior citizens in front every morning doing tai chi in front of it you know it's like it's just a place that people can just go and enjoy and then see this big statue that we did so i'm very proud of that like as children's achievements go that that, that that's pretty good that, that, that that's up there you know like yeah your, yeah. your other kids are going to struggle yeah. and possibly feel a little bit insecure, like, you know, ah, oh, I, I didn't quite match up to that. So, so go on. Um, other children's achievements that you're proud of in bracket sculptures? I mean, I guess, you know, everybody loves the Predator, you know. Um, oh, yeah. I, we need to start talking about the Predator. Yeah. I, I, my, my, I, I, I texted a few people before we started this interview, like, oh, wow, I get to talk to, you know, like, the guy that did the special effects, you know, with Predator. And now I've got 34 messages on my phone from five people. <laughs> What's up, United Kingdom? Alan Maxson here, a.k.a. the right head of King Ghidorah from Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Uh, if you are in Birmingham in August 8th, go to Eventbrite and book your tickets for the return of KaijuCon. I personally will not be there, unfortunately. I'm so sad I can't attend. I wish I could. It's going to be a blast. But my friends over at UK Kaiju are going to be putting this event together. It's going to have everything to do with all giant monsters and creature cinema and everything you love about monster movies. Go to their page, get a ticket, and go to KaijuCon. It's going to be so much fun. And... Post pictures. I want to see this. Since I won't be there, I want to see your videos and your pictures. Rock on, everybody. Welcome back to Kaiju Curry House, and I'm here with our hosts, Alex, Paul, and Joe. And we're continuing our conversation about uh, Predator, I guess, right? I would like to give a shout-out to one of our members, James. And James has a couple of questions, but we'll pick out one. Why didn't they use his amazing design for the Tooth Fairy in Darkness Falls in the end? Now, I've not seen Darkness Falls, so I can't contribute to that, so I'll just leave that in your in your hands. Do you want the PC version or the non-PC version? How non-PC are we going to get? Well, I won't, na- I won't name names. How about that? Okay, let's not uh, name names. Well, I'll, I'll, keep, it, I'll keep it very simple. Uh, I was hired to, to design you know, and build that Tooth Fairy for the movie. Uh, unfortunately, I ran into uh, the director who didn't really want to make a monster movie. And so he, rather than showing the studio what I had already done, uh, they didn't shoot the, mo- the monster at all. I, were, I was on set for three months and we did really practically nothing. 
And uh, somehow I got word back that the studio got... Average weight loss, 15.4 pounds in first two months. For guarantee, cancel within first 14 days. Discount with two months of auto delivery. Food charge and shipped every four weeks. Call or see website for details. Do you want to lose 18 pounds fast and improve your health? Now you can lose up to 18 pounds in your first two months with Nutrisystem. Get delicious breakfasts, lunches, dinners, even snacks and shakes delivered safely to your door. All delivered for free. It's easy to follow. And you'll see results in your first week. Just text BODY to 323232. You'll get your favorite foods made healthier and perfectly balanced to put your body in fat burning mode. Text BODY to 323232 right now and get 50% off a month of meals and shakes. That's right, 50% off a month of meals and 50% off a month of shakes with probiotics to help support your immune system. Just text BODY to 323232 right now. There's even a money back guarantee. Millions of people have lost weight with Nutrisystem and you can too. Lose up to 18 pounds in your first two months. Just text BODY to 323232. That's B-O-D-Y to 323232. Texting privacy policy in terms and Text Texting for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out. Word from someone higher up on set that the creature was unusable and it was terrible. And uh, and then so uh, so when I left, when I finally had to, I had to leave set early because you know I couldn't stay for the last two weeks to shoot because I wasn't doing anything anyway and I had other things I had to do. So as soon as I left, my crew got sent home. Um, and then, uh, then a few months later, I heard that they had hired Stan Winston to replace the creature, and uh, which I didn't understand because I thought, well, if you're not going to use the monster, why would you even hire somebody else to do another creature? And then what I found out from a a friend who was one of the producers on the show told me that that they didn't even know that the director didn't even know that they hired Stan Winston because they had shown a trailer at, at Comic Con. And um, at the end, it says Creature by Stan Winston. And so the director apparently, allegedly, uh, got upset and said that if he had known they were going to hire another monster guy, that he would have just shot the original monster. It was never about the quality of the work. It was just simply he didn't want to make a monster movie, and he was adamant about not shooting it and not using it. But the studio said, we pay for a monster movie, and we want a monster. So if the first monster was so terrible... We'll hire somebody else to, to, to make a new one. Uh, so mm. I got caught in the crossfires of that, and mm. unfortunately, they tried to spare my reputation. Okay. Um, and, it, and, and I got, you know, and I did get word back uh, a few years later that another friend went there to, to interview as a director, and when they asked him, well, who do you want to hire to do the creature, when he mentioned my name that he wanted to hire me, they told him, well, you know what happened on Two Thirty, right? You know that his work was wow. so terrible. And, you know, so that was still, yeah, oh. that still kind of went on for a while. That they, and they, and they had never seen the monster. They just, that's, it's all hearsay. That's really shitty. So that's, that's what, that's what happened. That's why it didn't get used. Um, in fact, when it was, I remember when they, uh, they posted it on the, the Fangoria website or something, they showed, or even the magazine, they showed the, 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 the movie, the article, the article on the movie with the monster, and then they showed my creature as a, a single page story about the unused creature. Uh, I remember going going online at the forums of uh, Fangoria, and people were chiming in, just complaining why they didn't use my monster, that they thought it was way better. And then they, they ended up taking the whole post down because I guess the studio side was upset. So, so speaking, all right. So um, while we've been on this podcast, I'll give all of our listeners a bit of a heads up. So um, I messaged some of my friends in the United States who love your work you know like do you have questions so my brother and and i and um a very good friend of ours 
we were traumatized by that movie. Um, that whole beginning where you get like the two fairy going, <laughs> you know, like in just like the dark and stuff. Like we were pretty spooked by that. So we we spent the night with the lights on. Now, I just looked at your design for the first time as you were going through that story and speaking selfishly, holy shit, I'm glad I didn't see that in addition to that film because I would have never recovered. That is a fantastic design. Thank you. That is incredible. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate that now. Scared shitless Joe would not appreciate it. But I mean, I love I love what you've done with the mouth and how it comes down. And I it's almost like necklaces that you have like teeth, but they're growing out of the skin. The wings, they're I, I wanna say that like yes, they're like fairy wings, but they also have kind of like a crustacean effect to them as well. The color scheme, I mean, it's like necrotic gum tissue. It's absolutely fabulous. There was so much thought that went into that. I can see why people were so passionate once they saw that design. Mm -hmm. And then in the movie, you get an old lady with a porcelain mask. Yeah, it was. So and it was a burn. And she was a burn victim. I mean, in the movie, it was. Yeah, it was. It was at this time, it was very safe. I mean, it was well done. You know, I think the Stan Winston studio did, did a really good job with it. Oh yeah, it was just yeah, it was did. just a very safe design, um, and it really didn't challenge you to to you know tread into new territories and so like that. That thing that you that thing that you created those terrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so I'm gonna have to send that to my brother now. It's like, bud. It could have been so much worse for us. We we seriously had the light on for like two or three days and like even weeks afterwards, like we had to walk around the house, like you know, you'd flip on the hallway lights. Like that really affected us. I'd, I'd be like Yeah, you know you know what's sad is that um had the film been more faithful to the original script, it would have been even more terrifying. Uh I d I don't know what the reasons were that things were changed. Uh, around and stuff, but uh, but a lot of those scenes that were supposed to be really terrifying were more terrifying in the script, and there was more going on that that weren't shot, unfortunately. So, um, but I guess that doesn't matter, right? Because you know you're you're scared. You you're already scared enough by it. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Question for you, Steve. What do you yeah. think of Predator Two? Predator Two. Oh, this is another Paul question. Uh, in, in regards <laughs> to what? Okay, that, that's, that's too broad a question, isn't it? It seems that you fall into one of two camps, it's, if you get It's quite right. a divisive film. I saw it for the first time fairly recently, and, you know, whilst The Predator looked great in it, I found myself thinking that it was some, like, it was just quite a nasty film, and... Yeah, I I didn't care for it personally because uh, I I feel like th there's somehow that that movie started a trend with every Predator sequels at that point or remakes or whatever had to continuously riff off of all the iconic mm. uh, one-liners and you know and in them trying to pay tribute to the films previously mm. it's sort of become a joke and and you know and I just I I just wish. They would make a legit Predator movie that takes us somewhere else that isn't like Predators. Well, just or just somewhere else that isn't a rehash of what we've already seen. Predator Two was basically a remake of Predator One in a jungle, 
Predators was the same story as Predator, except now these guys have been kidnapped and taken onto a planet, and all the beats are the same. You know, they, they, they see the clues, they discover what this thing's doing little by little, and ultimately it's kind of more or less the, the same story. And, you know, and I just feel like, just go somewhere. I, I actually have a little short story for, um, a predator thing that you know, I think would be really cool, just as a short film, and it takes you somewhere. Completely Are you able to it. share any of that, or is that super secret? But no, never. Had. Yeah. Oh. Um. Well, I'll share it. I don't own Predator. You know, it's basically years ago when I was designing uh, some original Predator masks for SciShow collectibles. I designed this one called the Ceremonial Predator. And it's kind of reddish. It has three gold dots on his forehead, and it's the only Predator helmet that didn't have a weapon attached to it. Uh, it was very organic looking, and and the and when I designed these things, I had to come up with a backstory for them, you know, to, to help me design it. But also, the backstory thing gets published on the, the website. And what what this was, it was a ceremonial armor worn by the elders that, you know, that they basically, uh, it's a coming-of-age ceremony, really. The, 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 the young predators, so there's usually, there's a legend, which I came up with, for, you know, the, the three laser dots, it's signifying... Uh, basically, uh, a, a group of three. When the predators are young, they go hunting without any, without any weapons and, and tech to, to prove themselves. They go in a group of three. So, they go out, they hunt, and when they do finally, uh, you know, kill or get the beast that, that they're, they're getting, when they finally get, get awarded and, and get, uh, the title of a real full-fledged hunter, then they get the weapons, they get all this stuff, and then the laser is sort of part of the, the Signet that you know that legitimizes their their title. So I thought it would be really kind of interesting just to do a little short film about these three young predators going for the hunt and the whole process of how they learn to work together, how they go for the hunt, and then become and becoming full fledged hunters in the ceremony. So you show a little bit of a culture, the backstory of the predators, and and what they do, which you don't really get to see any of. Uh, you know, the closest that I've ever come to learning anything about backstory of of predators was actually in predators when you see the berserker predator at the end and and you know being in the industry and knowing a lot of people that worked on that they were telling me all this backstory about oh who they are and how they became and why they're a warring faction with a predator and i thought oh this is all fantastic and none i never of it, knew any of, of that it, existed none of it was in the film it's a problem oh none of it was okay in the movie. Yeah. okay dish man you've got a thirsty fan here like what what can you tell me <laughs> Uh, Where I do I find I, this backstory? I don't remember that much about it because it's been so long, but I know the Berserkers were a faction that broke off, uh, that were genetically mutated, and they consider themselves more superior than the regular predators, so they go out and they hunt the regular predators. That was kind of what I, I'm not sure if I'm getting it right, but that was a little bit of what I, I, I have heard. Um, but, yeah. Okay. So that's what they should awesome. make next. Yeah. But I feel like I, I feel like it's such an unexplored. It, you know, the whole Predator universe is so unexplored, but yet every single movie they make, they just choose to stick to the same formula. And, and frankly, I think the reason that they're failing is because I don't think the, I don't. I think the fans are sick of it. I think the fans mm. want to see something fresh, and they're just not getting it. Everybody's just. I would to like stay. to see a film with predators that's all just from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Or you could just have like like what Netflix does. You could have like an anthology of like I don't know five six episodes. Yes, and it's just different That'd hunts, cool. like each an hour long, mm-hmm. and it's the predators. Yeah. And you don't even have to throw a huge budget at it, do you? You just yeah. have to do them 
in whatever environment and like whatever they're hunting is obviously a big bad because they're predators. I yeah. mean, like they don't have, they don't go after bunnies. So mm-hmm. like you can just show like snippets of this thing that they're hunting and then boom. I mean, like, so like just to throw out like an idea, you know, like predators in 80 film, 80s film, John Carpenter's the thing is an 80s film. Mm-hmm. what if the yeah. predators met the thing on some world like they're just shooting at like this random animal and then all of a sudden it like you know does that like thing like you know like it becomes like the dog thing and it just like starts splitting off they'd be like what is going on <laughs> he's dead <laughs> yeah I mean, like that that would be you know like that predator fans are probably like did not see that coming but i like where they went you know like mm-hmm. that that's that's inventive but keep returning to people when you've literally got a whole universe at their disposal like why not why wouldn't you yeah, explore like, that like, topic like more predator meets elvis that would just be a, okay then like <laughs> we've got bubba hotel it's yes. just for oh, yeah. predators yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh lord that would be a great idea actually a netflix series of just uh anthology of predators yeah Hulu's doing it with Alien, aren't they? Like, there you go. Uh-huh. Steve, am I right that you worked on Gremlins 2? Okay, so I've got a question from my good friend Sonia. And Sonia said that I believe George and Lenny were inspired by their namesakes from Of Mice and Men. Is that correct? Okay, so who or what inspired the designs and personalities of the other new batch? Of the other new batch? So I can read the oh. message from them, but as I understand it, the green one is George, Dopey Brown one is Lenny, and the other two are Spike and Daffy. Yeah, it's actually Mohawk, Mohawk and Daffy. Uh, Daffy was just well, I think Daffy's pretty explanatory. It was kind of modeled after Daffy Duck, and uh, they just wanted like just crazy, googly-eyed, you know, multicolored, bright gremlin. Um, and then Mohawk was the one that actually I was responsible for. I designed and built that. And the spider as well. And, uh, you know, we just knew that he is sort of the, the new version of Spike. And Spike had the white Mohawk. So ours had to be a little bit different. And really the only, the only description that I got from Rick Baker, who was, you know, that, that was his project. He was the one that headed it up, uh, was that he thought that Mohawk should be black. And I said, okay. And then I just built it, and that was what ended up on film. So, well, thank uh, you for that because Gremlins Two is their favorite yes. film, so um, they are absolutely delighted <laughs> if I have a chance to ask that question to you. I wanted to ask about your time working on Hellboy, because I understand that Del Toro said that it was like waiting for prom night, as you spent literally what's like eight yes. hours on the makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we nice. were uh, testing Ape, Ape Sapiens makeup for the first time. Uh, that was a very complicated makeup, and and you know, I don't believe the makeup has been done like that that way before. Um, and so I had to really kind of engineer out how we're going to do everything, including all the the clear material on him. And uh, yeah, it took quite a long time to work it all out. So on the night of the makeup test, um, I had to do it in steps. I had to. I had Doug Jones, who was you know, playing the character, and Doug is amazing. He's so patient, and he works with you. And it wasn't so much just putting the makeup on. I had to glue it on, move it, and go, okay, that doesn't move right. Unglue it, re-glue it this way. So I, I only glued parts of it, but not glue other parts. 
pause here. Yeah. That unglued process, you didn't just like rip a glued po- like piece off of poor Doug Jones, did you? Because that's like, you know, like you're using Abe Sapien to wax it. <laughs> yeah, no, we have, <laughs> we have solvents that we use. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Take it <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of that had to be worked out because there's so many intricacies to, to make up that, you know, the average person is not going to know. So, um, so I had to do all that. And once, once I was finally done and satisfied with how everything was glued to my notes, then we had to paint them up. And so that whole thing took about eight hours. And, and Guillermo came early. So he sat for hours and hours. And all, all I get is every so often I just came yelling from the other room because he wasn't allowed to see it until we were done. Um, it was just like, you should literally <laughs> wag. It's like waiting for a prom date. We're like, we're almost done, almost done, you know? So if you watch. That's what you said an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. If you watch, exactly. It is a prom date. Um, so if you watch the supplemental material, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the help, the, the original Hellboy DVD, there is a shot where Abe Sapien is coming through, uh, coming through the hall and you hear like, ladies and gentlemen, Abe Sapien. That was literally the first time Guillermo saw it was right there live on, on that that video so and he he almost cried he was so happy with it that must be a oh, wonderful moment yeah. <laughs> it was it was we uh you know it was it was like five months of of hard work just to get us to that point and um it was scary too because you're trying i was trying so many things i've never done before we are approaching well if not going beyond the one hour mark and it's time to round off this episode I really hope, Steve, that you join us again because I feel like we've only just skimmed the surface of your yeah. work. <laughs> There's so much. Yeah, sure. Any, yeah, just, you just let me know when. We normally finish the episode with any recommendations from our own side, small or big. Um, Joe, can you please lead? All right. So we didn't really get a lot of time to touch on it uh, this episode, but what I'm going to recommend is that folks go out and they uh, watch Monster Squad. So uh, Steve was uh, a part of the Creature from the Black Lagoon in that film, and it is a fantastic redesign. All of the monsters in that film are the classic Universal Monsters, and it's essentially the Goonies meet the Universal Monsters. It's got a bit of language. It's got a bit of gore, but it just works. It's a great cult movie. It's got great practical effects. It's got brilliant one-liners and it's just, it's an edgy version of the Goonies. So by all means, have a fun time, have a fun popcorn night, go out and watch that film because it's spectacular. Thank you for that. Paul, if nothing else. Um, If nothing else, I'm going to suggest that people go watch Guy of a Dark Hero, which I believe Steve wrote, directed and did the effects for. Um, yeah, <laughs> busy man. 20, Boom! Twenty-five years, twenty-five, twenty-six years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's also right. it must be one of the first like R-rated superhero films. You know, long before Logan and Deadpool. You know, you came out. Yeah, it's very bloody. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's... I think when I watched it, I was kind of into Power Rangers at the time, and this was like it was almost Power Rangers, but with lots and lots of gore. It was so much more faithful to the anime. Than the the original Diver <laughs> film, which I know you also go to. So yeah, fantastic film. It's the the uncut version is on Amazon for six pounds. Um, yeah, fantastic film. Please give it uh, what we'll watch. Splendid. And for myself, you mentioned it earlier, Steve. I'd like you all to check out Elite Creature Collectibles. I was having a look on the website, and I it's it's rather splendid. It's um, certainly for the connoisseur, and it, well, 
Yeah. You need to do a Reign of Fire Dragon, Steve. I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there. I already did, actually. <gasps> Where do I find me one of those? It's really old. It, it came out through SciShow. Like, I many, don't mind. Many years ago. <laughs> um, I, don't know if, I don't even know if you could get one of them, but it's, it came out a long time ago. Um, oh. The hunt is on. Okay, you got to do a Graboid instead then. Again, again, another draw. Oh, you win this round. <laughs> um, Steve, if nothing else... <laughs> Uh, I, if nothing else, I would like to actually recommend something that my wife has done. Um, her name is Mio Nakamura, and uh, she's a fantastic artist. She She's my head art director of my studio for years now. And uh, she's a very accomplished designer, sculptor, painter. She, she does it all. And she has uh, a line of toys, um, uh, blind box figures, out at, the, at, at a store called Hot Topics. And then it's online all over as well. And this line is called uh, Mio's Mystic Musings. And the toy line right now that's out is called oh. Little Nessies. And they're little <sighs> PVC figures in blind boxes. And her design sensibility is just so wonderful. Uh, she ha- already has a big following. We go to conventions and people like come up and buy her stuff. Um, and so it's available at Hot Topics nationwide called Little Nessies. Her first line was Little mm-hmm. Embers with the Little Dragons. And those did phenomenal. Um, and she has a, a third edition coming out that's a special paint job. But uh, but Little Nessies is what's out right now. And then next year, there's a, she's got a new line. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. My little girl's going to love these. Thank you for that. You can go on Toynami, Toynami.com uh, for more information because they're the distributors. But it's at least, you know, in the U.S., it's available nationwide uh, through Hot Topics and other other places, other oh websites. wow! Yeah. Yeah. My little girl's gonna go nuts for these because you know, like I have very few things that you know, like as the creature daddy, I can interact you know with the same interest. But these are cute; they're colorful. Yeah. They're Nessie because I'm a Loch Ness monster fan. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. You've just ticked a box here. Yeah, she has. Yeah, and what's brilliant about about the Nessie is that you know, if you for each blind box you buy, uh, you get another part, and if you get all four, if you get the the, the right combination of the four, you get a head. You get a tail, you get these two humps, uh, but they're all different colors. And what happens is that if you look at the artwork, it's actually, you see the Nessie with the humps, but if you look under the water, it's actually made up of four different little Nessies that look like it's one giant Loch Ness monster. So it's really, oh, it's we're really We're going fun. down a dangerous yeah. path, aren't we, yeah. Joe? Because both of us have young daughters. And, um, yeah, I, I see what <laughs> yes. you're doing here, Steve. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> We're, yeah, yeah. I, I can see Kids why they're, 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 they're adorable. Well. It has been an absolute privilege to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much, Steve. Oh, it's been so, no. thank it's been you. so much fun. Yeah. yeah, and thank you for the memories that you, I mean, like that you've given my siblings and I. I mean, <laughs> years of terror. Great. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much, Steve. Yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks, our listeners. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We'll have to have you back. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. Just let me know. Cheers. Okay, bye. Kaiju Curry House is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and produced by UK Kaiju. You can follow us at UK Kaiju on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or find us at heroespodcasts.com. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Google Play, or tons of other podcast services. Thank you very much. Bye. What a oh. legend! Wow, he was so nice, and he's just, and he's just gone. He like was that. so nice. Bless him.
And he just, he, he just <laughs> left. <laughs> oh, he was so humble. Oh, oh, please get him back for he more. Was so humble. There was so he's done so much. He was. Oh. oh. Call one eight 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 Farmers to switch, and you could save an average of four hundred and seventy dollars on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call one eight 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 Farmers to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December twenty twenty, underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance Exchanges or affiliate. Products not available in every state. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com.